0: Hello, I'm Frank Turner. Welcome to Tales from No Man's Land, a podcast that accompanies my album, No Man's Land. It's about 13 women from history who you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. Their stories are fascinating, moving, funny, and most importantly, worth celebrating and sharing. Welcome back to the podcast. And if this is your first visit, please do take the time to go back and listen to the preceding episodes and all of the stories that we've been telling over the last few weeks. Today's episode is about an event that I can vaguely remember from my childhood and an event that has certainly gone down in modern history.
1: On the 28th of January 1986, Kristen McCullin-
0: In January 1986, NASA's Space Shuttle Challenger took off for the 10th time. Its previous missions had already included the first black and female astronauts into space, and on this particular instance, they had a young civilian called Krista McAuliffe, who was a primary school teacher, on board. Just 73 seconds after liftoff, the Space Shuttle exploded on live international television, and all seven people on board were killed. I wrote the song Silent Key about what happened, about Krista McAuliffe, and the events surrounding her death.
1: Some surprise to realize that as she lost everything,
0: There's another reason why this song is interesting to me which is that I have actually already released it uh, on the album Positive Songs for Negative People from 2015 but for this particular take on it I wanted to include it on this album because it felt thematically of a piece uh, with the other material on No Man's Land and I wanted to take it back to a different and more original version of the song. So for this episode, I talked to my brilliant producer Catherine Marks at Assault & Battery Studios where we made the album and we discussed Krista McAuliffe, the recording of the song and the process of the album as a whole. Today I am sat in the live room of Assault & Battery Studios in North West London and I'm sat across from the wonderful Catherine Marks.
2: Hello! Um,
0: And Catherine uh, was the producer for the album No Man's Land. So today we're going to talk about the song Silent Key, but we're also going to talk more broadly about the album as a whole and about the process of making it and the personnel, the philosophy and all that kind of business and really get into the details on that. So thanks for being on the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Do I have to talk you into this or were you right? I think you were right with this. Yeah, I was pretty happy about doing this. You, you always make out like you don't want to do podcast stuff and then you're in like Flynn. Yeah, because once I get talking about the process, yeah. I'm kind of like excited about that. Yeah, well, so why don't we talk about the process then? Okay. And it could be exciting and about how we first uh, encountered each other. For me, I was thinking about how to make the record um, and there are a couple of things going on. The first of which is it seemed to me that mm-hmm. the optic of two men sitting in a sunless room recording songs about women it didn't seem brilliant to me um and uh i thought that it would be cool to work with a woman but as you and i both know uh female producers are thin on the ground yes there's a woman in nashville do you know who i'm talking about no oh she does loads of country records and then there's a woman who did a tool record as well who's quite well regarded sylvia massey that's the one yeah yes how do you feel about sylvia massey
2: I mean, when I first started years ago, I remember someone giving me a book on producers before I even knew what a producer was. Yeah. And I think she was the only woman right. in it. Okay. Yes.
0: But if that book was republished now?
2: There would be a lot more.
0: There, well, there'd be you. Yeah. You'd be in it. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you've done loads of amazing work. I know that you've worked with my friends in Wolf Alice. Um, you've worked with the Amazons. Yes. Uh, come on, sell yourself.
2: <laughs> oh, man, no. I saw that you had it written down on a piece of
0: paper. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, just, I'm testing you now.
2: Uh, yeah, so Wolf Alice, Foles, uh, The Amazons, The Big Moon, uh, Manchester Orchestra, Frank Carter and the Rattlesnakes. Yeah. Palace.
0: Palace, okay. Uh,
2: and Frank Turner. And Frank
0: Turner. Yeah. 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 So I sort of sent word to my label that I was interested in working for your own producer. Yeah. A couple of names came up. Your name was at the top of the list, not least because you work here at Assault and Battery in uh, Wilston. How long have you been here? I mean, this is where I first started, right. like 14 years ago. Okay. And you've got your little lair downstairs, yes,
2: my little cupboard, yeah,
0: it's very nice, it is too, yeah, where I mixed the album, yes, and we did we did some vocals and guitars <coughs> and stuff down there yes. as well, but we did most of it up here in this main room but um but yeah, so we and then we got on the phone with each other in the way that record labels do, yeah, and you were in Australia.
2: I was, I actually remember the conversation really well because I had sort of no background on what the record was. All I understood was there was a podcast involved with it, right. Um, I hadn't been sent the demos, so I hadn't heard anything. I just heard of you and heard that you were an amazing artist and an amazing person <laughs> to work with. Who told you that? I, don't
0: know. I asked around. Okay, right. Oh God, that's terrifying. <laughs> we had a good chat. We got on well. Yeah, yeah. You thought of were being asked to like record a podcast. Yeah, and this was possibly beneath your skill set.
2: <laughs> no, no, I was just confused as why me when it was about sort of amazing women. I wasn't quite sure what my role would be for me that conversation was really important because we did chat for a while. Yeah. It was late at night there, early in the morning here, yeah. presumably, and we were able just to chat freely about stuff. I was a, perhaps a little bit dubious. It, again, this was all before I spoke to you, that it yeah. was like it was an all-female thing. But again, once we started talking and then sure. there was clearly that, the chemistry and we were able yeah. to be candid and communicate yeah. quite freely then, yes, I was excited about the possibility yeah. of working with you. It had nothing to do with the subject matter. It was more about your creative mind sure. and getting into a yeah. room with you.
0: Well, How did you feel about the, the overarching concept?
2: I was really excited about it. The way I interpreted what you had said was basically I've c- kind of run out of things to write about. I also... <laughs> <laughs> I also really love history and it yeah. sort of started with one and then it, that got you interested in another. Yeah. and it, it sort, sort of snowballed. Yes. Yeah,
0: totally. I mean, I, I didn't sit down to write a record about women. I just sort of had one that was in that vein and then another and then another. I
2: think it's an inadvertent theme. I don't think it yeah. was
0: a specific there theme. Was, there was definitely a moment about halfway through the writing process where I kind of started seeking out people to write yeah. about that fit the theme, but it, it wasn't like I came up with the theme first and then sat down to write. There are potential awkwardnesses in politics and this kind of thing involved in, as we know, me as a, a white man making a record about women um, and sometimes seeing the first person all this kind of thing. And I remember we talked that through and you were um, refreshingly pro everything.
2: Yeah. I was you No, know, I was excited about it because also I didn't know about any of the women. I thought sure. I would learn something. But also you said, I want a female producer, but it's not just because you're a female producer. Sure. I actually really
0: like... Yeah, well, I think that's really important to me because the, cause, So the next part of the process was putting together musicians to play. Um, you know, I played everything that I can play, but we had other players in to play, you know, drums and upright bass and piano and accordion and strings and all this kind of thing. Again, I mean, first of all, I'd sort of taken the decision that I wasn't going to make this record with the Sleeping Souls as much as I love them. And they're amazing. And long may they prosper. And we all play together for many years, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know partly for the same reason I want to work with a female producer, working with a female band seemed kind of cool to me. But also, and this is really important to me, is that the most important thing isn't the gender issue, it's no. the skill. Do you know what I mean? And, like, I think that you're an amazing producer. Thank you. <laughs> and I think that you really took a lot of these songs in ways that I wasn't expecting. And Really? Um, yeah. I think you helped push them. Okay, but there's definite examples of songs that have ended up in different places from where I thought they were going to be.
2: A silent key.
0: Uh, Silent key being quite a good example, which is why we're here. Yeah. Because silent key Silent Key's in some ways one of the odd one-out songs on the record in the sense that it's a song that I've recorded and released in a different version on a previous record, Positive Songs, back in 2015. And I do remember at the beginning of the session, you know, we had... 13 songs to do and not Masters of Time. And I sort of said, if any song's going to fall off the edge of the radar here for time reasons, it should probably be Silent Key because it's already out there. And I seem to remember you, after we got into the demo stage of things, kind of going, no way that song stays. Yeah, that was one of my favourites. I think weirdly because that was
2: uh, one of the ones where I suddenly had big ideas. Yeah. Whereas the other ones felt like we were sort of modestly producing them, sure. nakedly producing them.
0: Yeah, just kind of f- putting together fair copies, as yeah. it were. So for those who don't know, just incidentally, a producer, a record producer, mm-hmm. as such as you are, how would you describe your role? Well, you said you've got a good metaphor. I do. It's Mr Miyagi.
1: Ah.
0: Yes. Kids. So he doesn't actually fight. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And he doesn't fight Daniel, and he doesn't actually do the fighting, yeah. but he guides him through the process. Yeah. You're like the sensei, as Like. It were. Mind control. Yeah, and, you, and essentially <laughs> the, I would say the producer's role is to get the best out of the musician in front of them.
2: Absolutely. I yeah. would say that as well. And through whatever means, kind yeah, of.
0: completely. So it's not like, you know, you're not writing the songs, you're not playing on the songs, no. but this album would not sound how it does if you hadn't been sitting in the chair in there.
2: Yeah, I think I think it's your, you adapt your role depending on the artist that you're sure. working with and yeah. what they need. Yeah. And you're, you were less about sort of, emotional hand-holding and more about getting you to not be so bloody perfect. (laughs) But although you love, like, you love all that, stuff as well you love things to kind of have feeling and and and
1: And
0: the the nitty-gritty of it is just take by take just you know i'll do a take of whatever it is guitar vocal and you kind of go well why not try like this or why not push this angle of it and trying to bring out different elements from the basic ingredients
2: yeah but also i think it's us kind of being able to bounce ideas off each other and to kind of slowly massage the songs into kind of where they ended up and it's and a Sometimes it was us trying things and not really having a clear sense. but just, what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One of my favourite bits of the process of making this record was in terms of the vocals, mm. because as you often do when making a record, we were laying down guide vocals. So mm. we'd kind of get a click track down or a shake track down or a drum track down or whatever it might be. And I was playing the guitar parts and you were getting me to just lay down a guide vocal and then just you tried to sneak it past me. There was one song we were doing where I'd laid down a guide vocal and you were like, yeah, I just wanted to redo just one or two bits of this guide vocal. And I'm thinking, why? I mean, it's just a guide. It's a scratch, you know? And then I realised suddenly that you were actually doing vocal takes and trying to not tell me.
2: Yeah, but how, how <laughs> you
0: not know? No, but I mean, well, I did. I figured it out yeah. eventually. I got there in the end. But I thought it was a really cool way of doing it. And I think that one of my favourite things about this record is the vocal takes. I recorded them all sitting down, yeah. which is a new thing. But did that I mean, that
2: just took the pressure off because it meant that you were sort of a bit more free and you weren't thinking about yeah. any, anything being too perfect. I mean, I think it was Dora Hand or Sister Rosetta, one of them where... I actually really loved the guide vocal because there was some interesting phrasing and metering which made it groove along a bit better and then you lay down a track which was actually perfect but it had lost that little thing and I think I remember trying to go, "Mm -hmm," trying to sneak it in and just go, let's just live with this one for a
0: minute and you you go, (laughs) no. We're both quite strong-headed in the studio. But it was cool and there was a moment I remember as well of you sitting there saying... um, Tell me a story. I think it might have been the line. The first sort of take, you're like, I'm, "You're not telling me a story right now." You know, I uh, yeah. don't feel like I'm kind of learning what you have to say. Yeah. You're just kind of blaring it out. And 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 that was really interesting to me. And we kind of went backwards and forwards on that one a bit. Given the nature of the record, it was a good approach to yeah. do it as a storytelling performance as well as yeah. writing.
2: Having your voice really close and yeah. personal. and Yeah,
0: and sit, just sitting in a little booth. Yeah. So uh, with Silent Key, I wanted to just pull out some guitars because, as mentioned, there was an earlier version of this song. But the funny thing is, is that I actually wrote it in the way that it is on this album. The song is in open G tuning mm-hmm. on the guitar, which the open strings make a chord, which is very nice. Um, and I don't really play in open tunings very often. And I remember being in the backstage of a venue in... Flagstaff, Arizona, for some reason I remember that. But in, in like, 2013, probably, 2014, somewhere around there, I'm messing around with this little riff, which was ascending dyads, he said, using a word that he almost knows what it means, um, which just goes...
2: So it's in a kind of. I know it's so beautiful, but so that was it originally in six eight. Yeah, it was, and it's okay. kind of
0: swung, and it's got that um, that ascending melody, and then there's the, there's also the bridge section as well, was a big part of the. <laughs> So I had these components, and this is an interesting thing just in terms of, like, the work that the Sleeping Souls and I do Mm. in messing and tuning around. So the album Positive Songs was a record that we actually cut largely live um, because we'd spent 18 months playing the songs Through on the road, which was extremely trying in places, but it was really good. And and, and by the time we'd finished Messing Around with it, so I'm now picking up my second guitar of the day. Uh Um, And we're now in uh, standard tuning in E major, which uh, makes it slightly higher, which means you push your voice a bit more, and it's... Which is a different vibe. Yeah. Um, and and it's much kind of heavier and it's got a kind of weezer feel to it and then yeah. that M bit is kind of became <laughs> And on from there. So yeah. it's in a different key. It's in a different time. signature, so it's got a different feel. Yeah. And and so that went out on Positive Songs. And, and, you know, very pleased with it. I am too. But it was kind of fun when I was going through the material for this record to think, well, thematically that song fits. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It is about a female historical figure who we will talk about in a minute <laughs> once we've finished nerding out about studio stuff. It was kind of fun to go back to the original and start from there. And then I had a demo of it, which we took the shaker from, I seem to remember. Yeah. And then we got heavy in the end, yeah, so so one of the, one of the things for me about the song is on, on the on the full band version that's on positive songs the that end part the the darkness up above bit has to kind of on that version it starts very slu- very down, and um, the amazing Esme Patson sings a guest vocal and then it builds to this sort of like enormous place because yeah. it's the penultimate song on the record um with this song, I kind of wanted it to get. Heavy right from the top of that, and then kind of peter out. So you've got a different approach. But the question is, because there's no drums on the song, how do you make it heavy at the end? Yeah. Enter Catherine Marks, stage right.
2: Well, also interestingly, what I noticed listening to your other version that's out is the way you give the sense of heaviness is through your vocal performance. Yeah. Whereas that's not what we did on this track,
0: or at least not my vocal.
2: No, not your vocals. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, definitely that sort of sense of weight and
0: gravity comes Um, from other places. (laughs) Yeah. And and it's, it's a thing I think about. I think that you and I both think about a lot is like within any given song, You've got to think about where you max out energy-wise and then kind of work backwards from there. In the version that's on this album, when it first drops the kind of end section, the darkness up above, it gets a lot louder, but it's not at 100% yet because otherwise there'd be nowhere for it to go and it still builds. But the thing that we did was messing around with some crazy detuned guitars.
2: I know. Well, what we call the Prometheus sound. Yeah, there was a
0: Prometheus sound. In the film Prometheus, there's that kind of... It's the
2: sound of like if the sun was rising... That's what it right. yeah. would okay. sound like. Yeah, if,
0: or you're being attacked by aliens. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or a spaceship is flying past. Yeah. Right. And I, I remember like I, I had two electric guitars tuned down to like C or B or well, something. Well no, that's that's how we ended up. But where oh, we, okay. we
2: where we started, I was like, it's like a horn sound, but like a really low horn sound. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Kind of like from a horror film. Yes. Yeah. So and then we so we had some analog sense. Yeah, we tried it with the Juno. Right. Then we tried it with the Moog. But the
2: Moog wasn't cutting through enough. And then I think we had uh, on the Kurzweil, which is like a sampler that we have here. There's a, a sort of orchestral horn hit wow. sound. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's <laughs> the technical term, by the way. And I just mushed them all together. Yeah. And that sounded great. And then we the, ran it through a load of reverb. And then I'm like, it's still not giving me yeah. that.
0: So I went back to... I listened to a lot of um, old kind of like Doom and Sludge bands like Burning Witch and Floor and stuff like that and they all tune their guitars down to the point where the strings are so slack they're nearly falling off and it's quite hard to keep things in tune because when you fret a string that's that loose, it sort of goes all over the place. So I was kind of like channeling a bit of that into it. But there was definitely a moment I remember where you were doing something and I wasn't entirely sure what it was. Yeah. You were kind of like, shh, sit down. Um, and I was like, okay, just kind of reading my book in the corner while you did your math. I think there was only two occasions that I did that, <clears throat>
2: told you to shut up and sit
0: down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but all for good.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but it's what I love about it is that it's heavy without – my standard go tos for heavy, which is a drum kit going. Bish, 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 bish,
2: bish. No, to me, it's supposed to be sort of a beautiful, graceful, but heavy sound. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like a like a spaceship gliding through space. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Kind
0: of. But I think, I think it's great because there obviously are lots of bits of music that can be heavy without having to be influenced by hardcore punk and, yeah. I, and I think this is a good example of that. But then so we had, we layered more. We called uh, my friend Kat Marsh who has a thing called Choir Noir yeah. Um, and we got the uh, female section of Choir Noir to come down and that was amazing.
2: Yeah, I haven't finished with the Prometheus Oh, sound. excuse me. There's more. There's more <laughs>
0: layers to this. Okay, all right.
2: Because in the end I sort of bounced down within Pro Tools as we've sort of accumulated different sounds. The last thing we eventually did was run your guitar through a DI and yeah. then through another DI, distorted them and then compressed them. Yeah. And so it was sort of this mid-range sort of Fuzzy. fuzz but also kind of low-end distortion. Can you just play play the descending part in that section? Ascending, sorry. Yeah. Now there's there's two things that are just playing the first note or the root notes. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, and they're, they're pan left and right. Yeah. There's a bit, there's a guitar that just goes Yeah. And then and does the other one does the sort of the inverse. Of yes, that, so you're right getting right. that yeah. foghorn kind oh, of yeah, oh. yeah. and it does that all the way through. Yeah. But there was but there's so there's more layers. So we had we had my friend Cat Marsh came in with choir noir and we had them layering up kind of choral vocals which sound amazing to mm-hmm. me. And again, you know, we dropped them at the start of the section in such a way that it's it sounds huge because this choir comes out of nowhere. Yeah. But we didn't drop all the layers of the choir right at the beginning, so it builds harmony part by harmony part. Yeah. No, that that's
2: really beautiful. And they yeah. sound like angels, which kind of...
0: Yeah. yeah, and I seem to remember you and I standing in the in the booth kind of jumping up and down and yeah. being excited while they were doing the, te- the first take, yeah. pretty much. This is it. This is the one. The other thing, uh, continuing to build through the track, is we did that thing. You played... An effects unit on my voice like it was an instrument on this song or an effects chain you set up my vocal oh like,
2: yeah that's the other time I told
0: you to sit down and yeah shut up. same song yeah
2: <laughs> so it was almost like I wanted your vocal to sound like a sonar or through a radio and the sort of distant yeah. echo of a radio signal sure So I ran it through a kind of tape delay So you had a
1: whole
0: bunch of stuff laid out on the side and you were playing it kind of live through the track, which was amazing. I've never really seen that done before. But you pretty much categorically said,
2: I don't want any reverb or delay on my vocal. And I was like, sit down. (laughs) 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 Let me just do this. But it's in there subtly. And then then it's sort of the delay and the reverb, it's sort of performed throughout the song, which kind of gives it uh The first half of the song, uh, kind of more
0: movement, sure. R- rather than it being a static kind of vocal right. performance. Well, and then so just going through the, the last two elements. First of all, you mentioned sonar there. I do remember that you wanted a ping, a yeah. sonar ping, and I think we spent about half a day going through every possible sound on every synthesizer yeah. or synthesizer patch available to us in this very top of the range <laughs> studio. And it was one of those moments in the studio where you think you're losing your mind. It was like. And you're like, mm, no. And, like, <laughs> and you're like, maybe. Note that one down.
2: But and did like, no, it? Did it? It didn't even go on that song, did it? I it went it's on. It's in the
0: second verse. Oh, okay. There's, a, there's
2: definitely a. And that a would pain. have and that would have been like a very short decay on a
0: yeah, Juno. I seem to remember going slightly mad through that that bit of the process,
2: which is amazing considering we didn't spend that long recording the entire record. Like yeah. that,
0: we it was a sort of very concentrated about two weeks all in. Yeah. I think. The final component for this song was the string arrangement. Mm-hmm. So I had a basic kind of paddy strings going on in the demo. I knew I wanted a more involved part, and I called Matt Nazir from Sleeping Souls. And this was the thing, actually. So we we talked about having an all female cast for the recording. There are yeah. two exceptions to that. One of whom was Cecil, who was engineering, mm-hmm. and one of them was Matt writing the strings part. And that's fine. I didn't. It didn't need to be a militant thing. It doesn't invalidate the record. Yeah. Um, but uh, so Matt wrote this amazing string part, um, and then we got um, Anna Jenkins uh, and. Joe Silverstone, who played on loads of my records, came in and tracked the strings parts. And my mum said that uh, the string arrangement at the beginning of the song was her favourite bit of the album.
2: Of the Silent King? Yeah, yeah.
0: And I was like, but screw the rest of it.
2: Yeah, right. (laughs) What about the Prometheus section? What about the Prometheus sound?
0: So we have all these components and then you were mixing, which we did in a slightly remote fashion. I was kind of on the road yeah. and you were sending me mixes and I was sending you notes. But it's a difficult thing, once you, particularly at the end of this song when you've got a string part, you've got guitars galore, you've got all this stuff going on to, to balance that in a way that's effective.
2: Yeah, I mean everything is kind of either doing the same thing or mushed together. I mean there's a lot yeah. of like paddy sounds as well. There's yeah. nothing detailed like a little acoustic guitar or whatever. Sure. So
0: through. placing all of those different elements, yeah. that's the kind of difficult part of mixing, I think.
2: But then we recorded it the way that we wanted it to sound in sure. the end. So all the frequencies that we kind of boosted or pushed or the compression that we used, we right. kind of built that or painted yeah, yeah. that picture in the way yeah. that we wanted it to sound at the end.
0: Yeah. My sparse knowledge of mixing such as this, it's this, that thing of like you, you can't pile everything in the middle. You have to kind of spread it around the frequency spectrum or um, around the stereo spread or whatever yeah. it might be just to kind of let everything kind of have its place.
2: Yeah, we, you take more out than you add in. Yeah.
0: And then leave a little tiny little hole for Frank. For <laughs> <laughs> the vocal to cut yeah. through the middle of it, yeah. yeah. But, it, I mean, I love the way it sounds. And I'm now in the difficult place of asking myself and being asked which of the two versions I prefer. And... and- <laughs> I don't have to choose between my children. No, you They're don't. all equally loved. <laughs> yeah. And now, finally, eventually, we've reached a point where we might even actually talk about the song itself and the lyrics of the song and the story. Um, so were you aware of Chris McAuliffe prior to uh, me coming into the studio? No. Do you remember the Challenger space shuttle disaster? No.
2: I, was, I would have been I can't,
0: seven. Seven, right. Yeah. Because, and so the story goes that Chris McAuliffe, was a, uh, she was a scientist, but she was a primary school teacher from New Hampshire and lived in Boston. In the late 80s, the space... Program NASA in America was kind of running out of steam a little bit, and as a essentially as a public relations exercise, yeah. they decided that it would be good to have uh, a layperson um, involved in the next shuttle launch. Um, and indeed, they went with a primary school teacher in order to interest the children of the world in space. They got Chris McCallif; she spent ages training. There was this huge PR campaign about it, and then on the morning of the twenty eighth of January, nineteen eighty six, as the song says, uh, the shuttle took off and. Um, as it was leaving the atmosphere, on live television, it exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the thing was, it was being broadcast live around the world to school children. Yeah. So there's this like unbelievable kind of moment of high tragedy in this. And I can't quite remember if I can remember it if I can remember remembering it, but I was definitely kind of aware of it as a kid. The thing for me in terms of writing the song, and obviously this falls outside of the strict remit of writing the rest of the record, because I wrote this song in probably... 2013, 2014, Mm. when I was working on the material for Positive Songs. But I I remember I'd had a note in my notebook for ages that just said Krista McAuliffe because I thought it was that there was a song in there somewhere. Mm. Um, And I was reading about it. And the thing was, is that they, uh, well, they probably ascertained that um, what happened was the O-rings, which are kind of like sealant kind of rubber Sealant rings were not properly in place, and some fuel got into a place it was supposed to be.
2: I actually read on the internet that it had something to do with the temperature on that particular day. It was too cold prior to launch.
0: Right, okay, so that they'd sort of shrunk or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But so the O the rings failed um, and the, the shuttle exploded. The sparking off point of writing a song about it for me was the fact that I read somewhere that from the machinery uh, they had monitoring the flight, yeah. they figured out the crew didn't die at the explosion, they died on impact in the sea, which is an awful awful thing I remember when I was younger I had a moment in my head where I was thinking about trying to write either a song or, or a play I've never written a play I don't know if i will ever write a play but like about people on the you know the upper floors of the world it Trade Center. it would surprise
2: me if you wrote a play
0: I'd <laughs> need to get, learn more about drama but you know there was a, the, the people on the upper floors of the world trade center yeah. had whatever it was like an hour and 10 minutes between the first crash and then the building collapsing and there's just this sort of You know, what on earth is it like to be there, to know that you're going to die immediately and that there's nothing you can do? And what would you say and what would you think and what would you... what would you try and do? Now, the thing is um, the report into uh, the disaster said that the crew were unconscious during the fall. Right. So the song is A Flight of fancy, And I did read some of that There's even some dispute about whether or not they were still alive at all.
2: So what made you pick
0: Krista out of Beca- it? Because she was a layperson. Because right. she wasn't uh, trained. Ac- I mean, yeah. you know, she would I'm-
2: have been the first teacher in
0: space. Yeah, and the, f- yeah. the first kind of, I mean, I guess non-astronaut, I suppose, yeah. and the other people who are on the spacecraft are equally as deserving of commemoration. Mm-hmm. But there is a certain kind of point poignancy to her passing specifically um, so in writing the song it's not this isn't strictly a piece of history in a way because it's quite fancy
2: now i didn't know this <laughs> I, <guess. laughs>
1: I love this tell us the story
0: so obviously i knew that i was doing this
2: podcast in new york with a friend and i was uh, telling him i was like it's this is an amazing amazing story i need to find out uh who this boys anyways this explaining year old kid it's kid raider. anyways explaining that Krista McAuliffe was going to be the first teacher in space mm. and the spaceship exploded or the rocket exploded just after launch as it descended to earth she was still alive communicated with this small boy <laughs> In Hampshire. In England. Hampshire. Yeah. Um. And I must find out who this boy is. And I was searching furiously <laughs> the internet, Christopher McAuliffe and four-year-old boy. Yeah. I'm like, and he's like, wow, this is amazing. Has anyone ever written a song about it before? And I'm like, no, not not except for Frank. And then of course, there's yeah. been movies about it, but no sure. mention of this four-year-old no boy. No
0: mention of the four-year-old boy. There is a reason for that.
2: And I texted you and I said, what is the name of the small boy? And I said
0: Francis right. Turner, <laughs> as I would have been known at the time. I'm absolutely devastated that that's not a true story. No, well, well, I mean, it, so it is. Obviously, we're now in the realm of imaginative fiction. Yeah, because this was the other thing. The title of the song, "A Silent Key," in a ham radio amateur network, which I think was a bigger thing before the internet. Should we say? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, uh, it's in the latest season of, of Stranger Things. They have a lot of ham radio. A silent key is the name that you give to somebody who was part of the network who goes silent oh, yeah, that, was and drops out you. of the network for unknown reasons.
2: So Krista was the silent key? Well,
0: in, in the fictional story I that I'm telling.
2: It could have happened. There's no way to prove. Well, this is where we have to be a little bit careful
0: because okay. I, something I discovered after I'd written the song and released the song the first time around was that a particularly vile American tabloid put out a hoax story that somebody somewhere had a recording of a final transmission from the Challenger crew. Oh, okay. And not only was it kind of unpleasant and explosive, but it had really upset a lot of the families and it wasn't true. Yeah. Um, and I then, I was quite conflicted at that point because I wasn't aware of this. I wasn't trying to refer to this. I wasn't trying in any way to suggest that that was true. And it it puts me in quite a difficult position as a writer because, you know, that that isn't what I was going for. But obviously on paper, I've done a very similar thing with the song. I guess the one thing I would say is that I hope that it's clear that the song is a piece of imaginative fiction, as I say.
2: And also it's a, it's a beautiful idea that, yeah. that that she was able to communicate, you know. Yeah, the,
0: well, and the, the hardest, well, funnily enough, what I thought was going to be the hardest part of writing the song, so I got all the way to, lyrically, to the, the moment before the end, the play-out section, mm. and it's, you know, and Krista says, I was like, well, this whole song is about what would you think if you knew you had a couple of minutes left to live mm. um, and you were hurtling towards Earth and you could see, the world rising up to meet you, what would you think? What would your insight be? And I thought, well, th- this has got to be pretty good. <laughs> you know, I can't just have something, some damp script at the end of the song. And I thought to myself, this is going to take forever to get this right because it has to be perfect. Yeah. And then my most creative place, historically, you're going to laugh, is the shower um, for reasons I'm not entirely sure about. But I went and had a shower and then it just came to me, the whole thing, in about two minutes. The darkness up above, lend me on like unrequited love. All the things I need were down here in the deep blue sea, and it's it's not a coherent piece of like philosophical statement necessarily, but it's there's a gist to yeah. it.
2: Yeah, the last little bit at the end though—that's from the point of view of. Of, of, of the, the boy, boy, yeah.
0: Of me. Yes. At four, at four years old, I heard the truth on my radio, so now I keep a moment's silence for, moment, for, for my silent key. Yeah. And the point there, and indeed of the whole song, and this is where I hopefully put some clear water between myself and, and tabloid journalism, is that it's supposed to be a respectful piece. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And the idea is that we keep a moment's silence. In, I don't and think there's any, any comparison.
2: I think it, okay. it, well, it is. Well, I'm it, bad it, because it does well, worry me. Yeah, it shouldn't. I think it's a beautiful piece of art in itself, and the story right. is <clears throat> like a lovely piece of fiction based on something that, that really actually did happened. Actually happen.
0: Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's you know, uh, Krista is one of the again one of the better known people that I've written on the about on the record. But it's as as a piece of tribute to somebody who, who let's let's be honest, lost her life in noble public service. Yeah. I, you know, I'm I, I think the space program is a good thing that human beings have done, generally speaking. Um, and I think that she was trying to contribute to it. Yeah. Yeah, And that's worthy of commemoration. An absolute tragedy, but... Yeah, well, it's something that begs to have a song
2: written about. Yeah, I think the song is beautiful.
1: very 1986 Kristen McAuliffe gazed in horror as the O-rings failed And she died, and she died, and she died For the next agonizing two minutes and 45 long seconds She called out the truth on her broken radio I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive came as some surprise to realize that as she lost everything, the world was revealed in a transmission so real that she understood everything was still alive. Miles as the crow flies away. A homemade ham radio in the loft of a Hampshire family home came alive, came alive, came alive, and the four-year-old amateur operator thus became the only person to hear. Chris's last desperate communicate We're alive, we're alive, we're alive came as some surprise to realize While he didn't catch everything The world was revealed in a transmission so real That he understood everything We're still alive Alive, the darkness up above that.
0: So there you have it, and what a joy it was to get into the nitty-gritty of the process of making an album with the amazing Catherine Marks. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please do subscribe and review the podcast wherever it is you do that online. Uh, If you do that, it really does help get the word out, and it is appreciated. You can find the song Silent Key, this new version of it, wherever it is you get your music from, and on my album No Man's Land, which is out now. Next week's episode is about Huda Sharawi, an Egyptian feminist from the early 20th century uh, who famously ripped off her face veil at Cairo train station in 1923. This episode of Tales from No Man's Land was produced by Haley Clark. The executive producer was Peggy Sutton. Additional production was done by Richie Kennedy, Paul Smith, Steve Ackerman, Josh Gibbs and Charlie Kaplow. Tales from No Man's Land is produced by me, Frank Turner, extra recordings and something else.